Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist. Luke Watson, a research executive at Get Britain Out, was the guest on today's show. I'm really aware that quite often we'll have people from the Remain side or from the side of issues that we tend to agree with. Now, we're always trying to get people who we disagree with to try and get a different perspective on, on every issue that we'd like to discuss, but sometimes it can be a little difficult, and it's taken us quite a while to get a Brexit here. But thankfully, Luke was really happy to chat to us, and we had a really interesting discussion about the internal politics of the Tory party over Brexit at the moment, the Chequers plan, and the potential for a no-deal Brexit. Before we get started, don't forget you can subscribe to us on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow us on iTunes. You can get our podcast on Spotify now. So here's Luke Watson. So Luke, thanks for agreeing to host me in the Get Britain Out offices for a little chat about Brexit. Yeah, it's a pleasure, to, a pleasure for you to be here. For a change. It's always nice to discuss something new and... <laughs> Everyone is definitely bored at this point of it, but um. yeah, I, I think I think most of us most of us are. It is dragging on a lot, but uh, you know, it's still not finished. So get, get used to it. It's not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be dominating political discourse for years to come. So, so uh, Liam Fox said this week that he thinks it's about sixty forty for a New Deal Brexit. Yep. Um, and in my mind, if Liam Fox is saying it's 60-40, it's probably something closer to 80-20. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just my, my personal thoughts. But how likely do you think we are to end up with a, like a new deal scenario? I think its chances are quite high, especially since um, you know Michelle Barnier has already come out a few weeks ago rejecting uh, major aspects of the Chequers deal and the proposal. So you know uh, May's customs arrangements. He's also questioned the Common Rule Book on a few times, saying actually, you know, this idea of regulatory harmonisation with goods should also be extend- extended to services, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and also actually now that May has sort of kind of came out with this ultimatum, she's kind of saying, oh, you know, either accepts the Chequers proposal, this sort of already watered down Brexit. A lot of us think it is. So we're giving a lot of concessions to the EU or we will go down the no deal path and I, I think the impression I'm getting from some uh, European leaders they don't want the no deal scenario mm-hmm. so whether or not they're actually going to maybe uh, reconsider some aspects of May's Chequers proposal I guess we'll have to find out maybe in the summit in October or in the months to come. Well I guess to me Chequers kind of looks like the worst of of all worlds it is. It's, it's, it really it's is. like taking all the rules with no say in it and not having the the ability to sort of make trade deals. With well, this well, this is the problem. So you know, it's it's the common rule book that I'd really highlight because, of course, it's basically taking all of the EU rules and legislation, you know, into uh, just taking it over. Um, also having jurisdiction of the European Court, still then having say on those rules and those laws. Um, and also, I think it'll just upset a lot of people who voted Brexit in this country, especially uh, small and medium-sized businesses. Of course, you know, who don't really see a lot of sense in the single market from their perspective because you know they do a lot of business maybe within the United Kingdom kingdom and may not necessarily be exporting or importing uh, goods and services abroad but then yet they have to accept 100% of single market rules and regulations and that, all the rest of it so I think um, it'd be a massive disappointment for them but then also uh, again you know with Barnier actually you know saying well actually you know this common rule book should be extended to services as well because you know you may have an unfair competitive advantage now in services so it does just go to show that you know European allies and neighbours are fearful of, I guess, of how well our financial services and other sectors of our economy could do, you know, not necessarily being tied down to a lot of these European rules and regulatory frameworks. But do you think they're likely to stay in in London if we like get to the point of a, of a New Deal scenario? Well, I know there's a lot of talks. Of course, there's been a lot of predictions. I know that, you know, in 2016, there's been, you know, uh, figures saying, you know, that would do 75,000 jobs and things like that. And now I think they're saying it may be 
more than less fewer than 5000 things like that and there are still you know a lot of companies investing and stuff like that in our financial services There's, i mean the problem saying less than 5000 that's optimistic uh it was it was i i'm pretty sure it was on bbc news somewhere i think it was the lord mayor or something like that um in london i can't remember I can't remember his name but there was definitely there was definitely a story out about that yeah i think it was it was something like that or he said he said it may be between 5000 to 15000 or something something like that or around around those figures of you know jobs that may be either be relocated or just lost in the process but yeah, so I know I know uh, financial services is a big one, and I know of course you know Europeans still want to have access to our financial markets, and we of course will still have access to their financial markets. So I mean, trying to come to a deal would be the most sensible decision. But of course, uh, there's only so many concessions that we can give uh, to the European Union, and of course with May now with this ultimatum, whether to accept you know her proposals, which uh, myself a lot of Brexiteers actually don't agree with, uh, and then of course, either just going down to the no-deal path. And it seems like the government is starting to prepare for a no-deal in some some way or another, with some of the stories coming out now. But uh, I guess we, we, we probably need some more concrete plans and evidence to suggest this. How do you feel about the fact that, that the PM has kind of taken over negotiations from, like, I, it was, it was kind of obvious that David Davis wasn't doing a massive amount, like whether that was out of his own unwillingness or sort of his, his own attitude to the to the job or whether that's because he felt Theresa May was sort of trying to strong arm in or whether Holly Robbins was trying to like control what was going on on behalf of the, the Prime Minister. But the Department for Exit in the European Union was essentially created so that a Brexiteer could lead the process yeah. and now we have the, the Prime Minister who but would remain continues to say or continues to refuse to say that she would vote leave if she got another chance <laughs> um, is now conducting the negotiations. Do you think that's why you've, you ended up with such like a soft Brexit plan on the table? Yeah, well, she she promised herself that the negotiations would be led by a Brexiteer. Um, yeah, she of course, she voted Remain. I know I did get a bit of reassurance that apparently the rumours that she was sort of, they were saying she was sort of a reluctant Remainer. So maybe, of course, at the time, maybe she was just standing with Cameron and his administration. But I think the problem, the problem is what's now happened, especially well, with David Davis resigning. Well, it kind of made clear to us, you know, that months prior to the publication of the White Paper and the announcement of the Czechoslovakia, Deal, that Davis and his department were actually getting sidelined. They they didn't, you know, this was being planned by the civil service and most likely Ollie Robbins months, you know, prior to the actual, uh, you know, announcement of you know bringing these ideas like common rule book uh, to the table. And now, of course, you have got Dominic Grab coming in, another Brexiteer, yes. But now May has now just, uh, of course, announced, you know, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I'd say that you know she's going to take complete control of the negotiations, and all that means is just giving more power and more negotiating authority to unelected civil servants like Ollie Robbins rather than uh, someone like Dominic Rabb who is in fact yes a Brexiteer so now it seems like it's just an entire sort of remain contingent that is now just leading negotiations completely and probably May herself a Remainer that just doesn't have the heart in it she doesn't have the heart to to carry out the Brexit that you know 17.4 million people voted for. I don't think 17.4 million people all voted for the same thing, but that's that's a point for another day. Now, what would you say to the kind of like Michael Gove argument of things where he's essentially suggesting we should take what we can get now and then I feel like the, the rationale is that if we end up with this, with something along the lines of the Checkers deal, 
that it'll provide a stepping stone to go, look, you know, this wasn't we didn't Brexit enough or we didn't we didn't like change enough or we didn't get free enough from the European rule book or the European courts. And then you can go, look, now we're having to accept their laws with no say in it. Surely we should just then like take another step and go for like a full Brexit sort of five years down the line. Yeah, well, I sort of, I do sort of understand Gove's logic to an extent. He's kind of sort of like we should just get any sort of Brexit now, and then of course it can be reformed and amended in the years to come. But I think what a lot of us are really fearful of is that, of course, if we kind of get this Brexit now and it's a bit of a fudge, of course, and it's not going to live up to the expectations of millions of people in this country because, of course, it's not the actual Brexit they voted for. You know, you could potentially see a future government being elected trying to drag us back in to the EU or try and you know reverse the Article 50 process you know that that's you know has now taken place and the problem then I see with that is what do you mean by that has there been like actual legal sort of mechanisms put in place or no, no, it's just a suggestion. It's, it's just a suggestion. There's a lot of yeah. There's a lot of speculation that this could happen. But then, of course, my massive fear now would be, of course, of course, you know, public opinion maybe could sway the other way. Of course, if Brexit does not go the way they wanted, and then my fear would be is that then we'd be an even worse position than we were when, when we were in the EU. Because of course, if we then decide to sort of join back the European Union, I think they would turn around and say, well, you're no longer going to be the awkward partner. We're no longer going to have this special relationship. You're going to have to sign up to everything. You're going to have to be a committed member, whether that's, you know, Euro, Schengen. I, th- I, I This is just my personal view, but I think they'd want us to commit to everything because I think probably over the past few years we probably have been causing them a bit of you know a bit of trouble and uh you know um they always they've always had seen us the awkward partner you know that kind of have you know special opt-ins and opt-outs and things like that and i think this time you know if we were gonna join back and wanted to join back they'd want us to commit to the european project completely like no no other say well i've seen a couple of legal opinions drafted that would suggest that say there was an act of parliament passed that just said we nullify our triggering of article 50 that Essentially, there's no like recourse in place there that essentially things would just have to revert to the way they were because there's no, there's nothing written down in the in the Europe in any European constitution or document that says what would happen if someone triggers Article 50 and then chooses to like reverse that decision. And and some quite a few uh, European negotiators made it clear that if we said no, we we kind of want to change our mind on this, that we'd end up that they'd be happy enough to give us the, the same deal that we had sort of pre-referendum. Uh, do you think that's kind of out of desperation to keep us in? Or do you think that's out of like genuine sincerity wanting Britain to be part of the European project? I think it's trying to disrupt, because of course they know there may be a possibility, or they're trying to, of course, uh, influence domestic politics in this country and public opinion. Because I think saying comments and statements like this, of course, is going to—it's well, not only just going to, of course, uh, you know, undermine the whole Brexit process itself and Theresa May's negotiating position, but it's also actually now going to fuel, of course, you know, the sort of this. This sort of more, I think, vocal minority of this sort of Remain contingent, especially, you know, the sort of people's vote. So I don't know if you can call it a minority anymore. YouGov and Sky's data shows us probably maybe between 40 and 50% of the country think we should have a second vote. Well, this is the problem as well, and I think the polls are a little bit misleading because, of course, when they're asking members of the public what they think a second vote is, they... 
people have different ideas of what a second referendum or second vote would be. So some people, when they're getting asked, they would think, oh, is it a referendum or a vote on the Chequers deal or a no deal? And of course, a lot of people are thinking, oh, is it uh, is it a vote on the Chequers deal or no deal or, or just remain and things like that. So of course, there are Brexiteers who may have answered this poll thinking if there was a second vote, it may just be on these two options. So we're still going to get Brexit regardless, but it's just what form of Brexit? Is it going to be the hard Brexit, of course, that a lot of the Brexiteers desire, or is it going to be a more soft the watered-down version that Theresa May is proposing. So I think we've got to be really careful when looking at these sort of YouGov and you know other polling organisations who conduct these polls. We don't know the demographics they're looking at. Because well, we can look it up in the. In the of course, yeah, of course, you can. You can have a look and see who is actually saying. Um, what but I think also it's just, it, I think the questions need to be clear so of course when you're asking what the second vote is you should actually also be saying in this hypothetical scenario what the options would be on the ballot paper if we did have this second vote because people have different ideas of what that could be I don't think um, a very slim majority asking for it is uh, enough of a mandate I have this uh, crazy opinion that you can't just govern by the very tiniest of majorities <laughs> but so at the minute we're kind of in a bit of limbo chaos we really don't know what's going to happen we could end up remaining in the european union or we could be completely out of it in in every way shape and form absolutely and every sort of scenario in between could happen it's yeah of course entertaining but a little draining um, <laughs> but do you think that the the current chaos could have kind of been avoided if we'd had someone that had a plan for when leave one like is, is this the brexiteers fault is this Cameron's fault for not for kind of maybe maybe he was too arrogant to believe he could, could well, this, lose. Yeah, well, this is the thing. I think it is partially Cameron's fault because I know I think during the referendum, before the referendum, when of course the bill had got passed in Parliament, to then actually be able to hold this referendum, um, I I know I think there's, there was rumours and speculations that there were civil servants and there was civil service part of civil service, you know, trying to maybe work, you know, coming to Cameron and saying we, we actually might need a plan or a contingency plan, of course, if it is a leave vote. And it seemed that Cameron was very clear that he didn't want any plans at all to maybe prepare for a Brexit scenario because I think he was so arrogant and he was so sure of himself that he would win, that he would win the Remain vote. I mean, yes, it might have been a narrow vote he thought it would have been, but I think, you know, he'd already won, you know, a Scottish independence referendum vote couple years ago he thought he could do the same so you know he, he you know two years ago he sort of well sorry more than two years ago now but um you know he sort of you know, quiet down the scottish nationalists voice and he was sort of hoping this referendum would then quiet down the eurosceptic voice that is quite vocal in his party as well i think also the problem is of course once cameron resigns we just got another remain prime minister to take it take uh, take his place so i mean personally i originally would have been for someone like andrea ledsom or even michael gove because of course i, I felt we need the Brexiteer to be in charge because they have the heart in it you know they've passionately campaigned for it and you know they would want to put everything on the line to ensure that vote is delivered um, so I don't think May has ever really believed in Brexit or has ever actually you know wanted to actually she's sort of just been forced in a position where she has to do it because of course there was a referendum uh, and there was a legitimate democratic mandate one of the biggest in this country's political history yeah I, I reject that that's that's because of population growth not because of any any sort of like monstrous majority. no but there's still there's still like <laughs> yeah okay but there's still it's still one of the highest turnouts we've ever had in uh, you know the history of elections oh, yeah, definitely like that. So, you know it was over 70 70% of turnout you know a lot of people yes of course not all people didn't go out and vote for, you know for 
various reasons. But um, yeah, there was there was a large. I mean, there was a large proportion of the population, you know, that did go out and vote. And you know, whether that was for leave or remain, I think you cannot deny it's definitely one of the biggest democratic uh, exercises we've had in this country. Yeah, but we're not we're not big on referendums, which I think is probably a good idea. It was a good because referendums are tricky things to deal with. It's all about. But even just trying to figure out a way to put language on a ballot paper is, is is tricky for me. Like I feel like that's going to be the most difficult part for people who are trying to get a people's vote is to figure out how they would put it on a, on a ballot. Yeah, and what, and what options would they actually have? Because I think you know with referendums, I think I think the maximum options you can have is maybe four on the ballot paper or something like that. So I mean, I don't, and I you know, and also and then you've probably got people within the people. So of course, you know, there, a lot of them will argue that people, and of course, you've uh, probably made the case. You know, a lot of people on the Brexit side had different visions of what Brexit could be. I there's a lot of people personally on the Remain side who may have different visions of what Remain could be oh yeah 100% because there'll be reluctant Remainers like you sort of described Theresa May people who thought Europe was good but not perfect yeah so there'll be like Jeremy Corbyn was like that as well yeah so there'll be soft there'll be soft Eurosceptics who of course don't like the EU per se don't like its current form and structures and of course want it to maybe try and reform it within or just um, think it's probably you know sort of the best scenario right now where it's for our economy and just our place in the world and things like that but then of course then you of course you have the more staunch Europhiles that of course actually love the European project they want Britain to be more involved and more committed uh, 20-30% yeah I know, it, it, no, exactly it's a tiny it is, it is a minority in this country because we've always been generally historically Eurosceptic ever since we, we joined back in 73 and then voted to remain in 75 so yeah it is it is clear but i think you know but then of course then you could start to look at you know but then what do these people's vote want do they want a soft remain or a hard you know that you could just sort of just turn the argument back on them when they of course sort of you know these these concepts of soft leave and uh sorry soft brexit and hard brexit have sort of come out and also what i find funny is even before the referendum i didn't especially like the liberal democrats for example i didn't hear any of them being vocal about oh but you know if Brexit does happen, we might have to have a vote on the deal. We might we might need to have a second vote, sort of, you know, because I think one of the reasons was because they were so assured that they were going to win it. Like, a lot a lot of people didn't predict this was going to happen, so of course they didn't make these arguments and cases until after until after the vote happened. They realised, God, we actually might be leaving. We might be leaving the European Union. Ironically, it was a lot of the Brexiteers who were discussing it as a two stage referendum. Uh, Dominic Cummings made the case, sort of, late 2015, that there should be should be two stages. Um, and his, his reasoning was essentially that if you lay it out as like a two-stage process that you can make the case in the first round that to remain, to vote to remain is the risky option because you could go, okay, say you, you would you either have the choice to remain as we are or renegotiate the deal slash leave, would be like the two options. To remain as we are would be silly because if we could get a better deal, then why the fuck not? Yeah. So they, they their plan just like brainstorming when they were trying to figure out how it was going to be conducted. Like, well, I, don't, I don't know how seriously they, they took it yeah. and it kind of disappeared once Boris mentioned it in, in the Commons and David Cameron kind of shot the idea down, probably out of arrogance a little yeah. bit. Do you think we were right to, to trigger Article 50 when we did? Like, you th- that was very, very clear early on that it was, it kind of felt like a bit of a smash and grab. It was like, oh shit, we won, right, wait, get, get out, quick, quick, quick. Yeah. Also, because well, the problem was is so because I know a lot of Brexiteers wanted you know Article 15 to be triggered on the 24th you know straight right after uh, after the referendum result because that was never going to be possible considering then we'd have, you know we had a prime minister who resigned and then we had to you know form a new cabinet and form a new government essentially 
yes, I think, you know, the problem... Do you think Cameron should have resigned? No, personally not. But then I do... Because, well, the thing is, he kept... He kept... Because he would have been... Well, you know, he kept... You know, Zach, you know, he kept claiming that, um, you know, he would he would deliver the result no matter what. But I think, actually, a lot of us deep down knew that, you know, he was going to res- he was going to resign and he was uh, he wasn't going to carry on with the... Uh, with the process was something he doesn't believe in. And of course, that's why some understand that. So then I'm kind of thinking, so why is someone like Theresa May then coming in who obviously doesn't believe in the process as well? So, and I think the problem was with the triggering of article 50 is that the government was sort of panicking because of course, you know, you've got, you've got the likes of like Gina Miller doing all these court cases, challenging the government in the Supreme court. Because it was fair. Gina Miller, Gina Miller's court case was 110% fair. Like, it was, it was, it, no, people, and I, I, I feel honestly, like she got yeah. such a bad rap. For she that. did. She did. And I, and I, thing is um she and i tipped as a new lib den leader I, yeah i know i did see that actually and the thing is i i agree but thing is what what frustrated me of her the most is you could clearly see what her intentions were she just because what she was trying to do was she wasn't going into this court case because she believed in parliamentary democracy and this idea you know that of course it should be decided by members of parliament she was going in there because she was hoping that if she won this court case then mps would not vote to trigger article 50 that was her goal because she wanted to stop brexit before we could even actually trigger and begin the process um so of course you know the government then of course you know Theresa may came out and andrew marr and said okay we're going to be leaving at the end of march um you know in tw- uh, 2018 um no, sorry we're going to trigger it in march 28 uh, sorry 2017 and then of course the government had to then quickly get to that deadline that she promised by making sure all this court case get out of the way to make sure that mps vote on triggering article 50 which they did so of course it overwhelmingly know, yeah so, so of course a lot of it would have been electoral suicide oh it them. would have especially for a lot of those um labor and conservative mps well especially if they were in leave constituencies as well yeah they they i mean especially of course then you know this snap election was uh was called anyway then a lot of those mps would be losing their seats i think of um but actually i mean the snap election might not have been called if, if there was a was a triggering of article 50 i don't know Pers- personally i think it was a bit of a bit of a tactical error i no i think i think uh i think she wavered on it i think she considered doing it straight away which she should have she should have like it should have been like that yeah she should have been like right i'm i'm a new prime minister i need a mandate the sort of hesitance and the oh we're not going to do it you know we're all just going to get on with the job and we're not going to and then all of a sudden it appeared out of after her away two days in the countryside to think about about it and yeah i think she kind of like had she was initially against it and then got convinced and i think it's the same thing happened to gordon brown and he 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 was like flying high in the polls he was doing amazing like everyone forgets that gordon brown was like Super popular for about eighteen months. It, it was yeah, it was it was before it was well, I guess midway through two thousand and eight. Really, wasn't it? it was because there was there was still. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't even from what I can tell. It wasn't even the crash that did him because he was he was dealing with that reasonably well. From what from what like it was memory. more of being just his leadership personally because um yeah and he, he hesitated on like he was storming ahead in the polls and then he hesitated and he ummed in the ad and then when he got to it he was kind of like he felt it felt like he thought he had to do it and then it was yeah. Like a reluctant, and I feel like Theresa May had the same sort of feeling. And you got to do, you got to do things with conviction, uh, I think, to to get anywhere. Um, but we've got kind of sidetracked here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, are we going to end up with Brexit in name only, or are we going to end up crashing out with no deal, or you know, will there be some sort of last minute agreement to extend the transition period? To- I think, I think personally, it's gonna it's gonna get to the point a couple of months before. You know the the Article Fifty process is legally finished. I think there will be 
definitely prospects of a no deal scenario but then i can potentially see you know whether it's the uk government or eu negotiators maybe both sides are probably going to panic a bit and i think you're right then there may be some sort of transitional period that's going to quickly be agreed and then of course then it will kind of extend sort of the process for another 18 20 months or something like that to continue these negotiations um because the problem is it, it could well with may's current uh checkers proposal it could be brexit in name only because we are still we would still be accepting a lot of rules and regulations from the european union then they would still have uh jurisdiction say through european courts over over those uh, decisions it also undermines one of the biggest you know especially what i campaigned on one of the biggest arguments of course for leaving the european union is the ability to sign and negotiate our own free trade deals outside of a customs union outside of this outside of this trading block and you know, make those deals with the united states with india with australia and why why is a u.s trade deal more more favourable than with Europe, given that we'd still have to take their rule book. Trump's been very clear on that. Well, why, I think- why, is it, why is it different to go to America and say, well, we're going to take your arguably lower quality products in, in some cases, especially if you're talking about uh, like GM crops or like hormone-fed beef or chicken. I don't feel like that's the, 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 the biggest problem. I just think people wouldn't buy that. Like, it, why, is, why is America better than, than Europe to have a free trade deal with? Well, I think it's it, it's good having uh, really trade. No, like we, a third we, of the the world through the EU. We do, but I think the problem is with the European Union as well, and especially when you look at the customs union, it is a bit of an economic basket case because there's this sort of there's this sort of you know illusion where you know the European Union is very for free and open trade and free market. So yes, that is very true within European member states and between European markets. But then when you start to look outside of that. It's, it's not the case, really. They kind of put up sort of the, the, the walls around the world. Um, if you look at a lot of, like, you know, goods that come from, like, Africa, for example, have massive tariffs put on their on their, their agricultural goods trying to go into European markets because, of course, you know, the Europeans want to, you know, uh, prioritise Spanish oranges and Italian tomatoes and that sort of, and, you know, French, French vegetables and stuff like that. So I think... Is that not kind of fair? You going to protect well, your own yes, industry? Well, yes, well, yes or no. But I mean, you, you can protect your industries to a certain extent. But like then- say, right? Say we start taking beef from America, and it start become popular because um, you know it's a little bit cheaper, and it starts to sort of displace some of the, the British farmers, and they start losing out on business. They start like having to require either more subsidies from government, or they just go out of business altogether, and we potential to lose the like our British farming industry. Do you not think there's a risk of that? Um, I think yes and no, because of course, as an independent country, if it kind of gets to that situation and, you know, for example, as you're saying, it seems like the sort of the implication of like, you know, US beef sort of dumping on our markets and things Mm -hmm. like that. As an independent country outside of the customs union, we would be able to unilaterally potentially put tariffs on those goods. So, I mean, you think Trump would be, you think that Trump, Mr. America first would go go for that i think yes or no i think i think if it's it could be sort of the comparative advantage of course if we have something to provide the united states then of course you know it could be like a a, tax haven perhaps maybe maybe maybe. but i mean um 
the point I was trying to sort of get at is that I feel like the, the sort of the, the European Union setup of trade is a bit hypocritical because, you know, for example, with the United States right now, this, you know, this is why Trump has been putting so much pressure on the EU. Because, I mean, if you look at like, you know, so the EU slapped 10% of tariffs on American cars, yet America only put 2.5% tariffs on European cars. Mm. And of course, now Trump's saying, well, hang on, there's a bit of a trade deficit going on there. We want to make it fairer. So, of course, then he's now threatening to put higher tariffs on European cars. But then the European Union is kind of, you know, going all up in arms, getting really frustrated and angry about it. But then at the same time, it's like, well, you, 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 you've already got high tariffs on their goods. So then, but then now they want to do the opposite, and you're upset about it. So you don't, you don't, and you're kind of saying, oh, you know, this may cause a trade war. You know, this, this is, this is causing threats, and you know, on our economies and stuff like that. But. You, you, you set, you, you erect tariffs on loads of goods all around the world. And then, of course, when someone does it to you, you don't like it. I think it's just, it's quite hypocritical. It's a little bit hypocritical. But then, you know, get a tiny bit hypocritical. They are, I know. They, I know, I know yeah. the European Union, um, is just going to be putting their economy's best interests first. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, I think then it kind of, it, it will exploit other economies. I mean, um, I know, I know there have been examples of when I was at university and I had to do, uh, research on European trade. Uh, so one of the things, of course, while saying, you know, there'll be like, for example, African coffee beans, they're unroasted. So if they've processed at all, then Germany would put tariffs on those, uh, you know, roasted coffee beans. But if they're unroasted, then of course they're a lot cheaper. So then Germany then, of course, process them themselves and actually make quite a hefty profit. Mm-hmm. And actually it's sort of seen as maybe exploiting some of these African countries. But at the same time, they put these tariffs on, you know, their goods. But then also they'll dump, you know, like where it's like frozen chicken or tin tomatoes on their markets, which of course is destroying African farming industry and local business like that. So, I mean, you know, as you said, of course, you made the example, you know, that could be applied maybe to our British farming industry and stuff like that. But I think being an independent sovereign country will then will then have, you know, the unilateral rights to uh, protect those industries in the way we can if we wanted to. But right now, because we're stuck in a customs union, we have to agree with 27 other countries who have different economic preferences and different economic needs for their industries and, you know, may want preference over one good or the other. We all have to agree the same tariffs, the same trading external policy, you know, and I think it's just fair to say that, you know, our economy may have different needs to the economies of Romania or Poland and Bulgaria, just quite likely we might have different economic needs to Italy and Spain and Portugal. So, I mean, I think it's fair to, if we want to come out of a customs union, to then unilaterally decide and dictate our own trade policy. I would say that's what the video is for. It is, but I mean, but then, but then, exactly. But then, of course, you could be at stalemate for for years, years to come with that sort of thing. I mean, this like you know, a lot of people talk about you know, it's It's great, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it and you know, and it's and you know, a lot of people kind of talk about it's great, you know, how you know the EU have now you know got free trade here with Canada, and they recently have decided to uh, you know formulate and concrete one with Japan, for example, like that. But it's just like how many years it's taking these these countries to uh to actually negotiate because you know for example i know the canadian one took around seven years because mm-hmm. there was romania kept vetoing because there was an issue with romanian visas or something like that going into canada or they, they there was some there was something like that yeah um Canada are pretty good for, for, for working no they usually are so i'm not sure what the actual so i went i went through for a year yeah so i'm not sure what the problem was but i don't there was something romania wasn't happy about something so they kept vetoing it and then of course i think they finally came to the to came to the negotiating table 
But I mean, I know there's been issues with the EU where they've been trying to uh, negotiate with New Zealand and other countries like that. Ecos is is seen as maybe more logical having sort of a trading block, you know, kind of trading like this and things like that. But the problem is you're you're putting together a lot of different size economies and rich and poor economies, all expecting to abide by the same trading standards and trading policy. I just it, I just don't think it works. It's fair enough. It's a fair enough point to make. I'm not sure how much I agree. But like <laughs> I'm not. Don't, tra- don't I'm, not, I'm, not a tra- I'm not a trade expert, yeah. so like I can't. I can't claim to have no. like a. a no, of course. No, I mean this is just just from like uh, previous research and reading I've done. So. Yeah, yeah. No. Um, so at the moment, I'm, I'm heading to the IEA when we finish up here, and they put out their paper about why Britain should prepare for New Deal, why um, it's essentially a clean break could be the next best option for Britain. Um, do you think it'd be worth the sort of panic and? Sort of madness that is that could well unfold if we get to um march 2019 and there's nothing agreed and you know all of a sudden people aren't sure if planes are going to take off or if borders are going to stay open or if you know ships are going to be allowed into port and medicine like well, i think we need to we need to be really fighting. we need to be really careful about this because i know there's been scaremongering stories they'll say for example you know that there may be like military on the streets handing out rations and things like that i think that's I think. A, that's, that's, that's far, yeah right? and I, I i agree so i mean of course you know the government may be having a contingency plan for that but then it but then the thing is it, it's good to always plan for the worst case scenario because then if you didn't then of course you may have people from the remain side saying well you didn't you didn't you didn't prepare for this but i mean i don't think that's going to happen but i think we you, need can't, to be, you can't be caught with that no, twice but i think we need to be really <laughs> careful with the sort of um you know because of course I, I i think having a deal um is more preferable than wto but we need to be we need to stop um over exaggerating the sort i think wto terms and rules because once if we do go on to wto rules um so we will be as a full member of the wto as well as the european union there are already regulatory frameworks and procedures and you know agreements in place for the standards of goods and services and things like that so this idea that because you know we won't necessarily be accepting you know all these european rules anymore and things like that that you know the trading will cease completely or you know the european union may erect more um you know procedures and standards on our goods to discriminate them so they can't come through and things like that um you know, there are ways around that i mean for example i know, i mean i you know read an article on brexit central recently that you know was talking about there's you know of course this this remain a fear that um you know the EU, the eu could multilaterally put uh you know new uh standards or rules on our goods but to discriminate them but if the goods before we so while we we're still in the eu and trading with them if the goods remain the same itself whether it's you know labeling or you know standard of product and that sort of thing and quality um if they all remain the same then trading should proceed there's going to be of course some holds ups because we've now with the custom checks and things like that but this the trading itself should still proceed regardless because of course if the european union tries and erects new rules we could in our own right take them to wto courts over um disciplinary procedures and things like that and actually yes of course so delay trade for a while but we would certainly win and actually you know it would show the european union just all being spiteful you know just trying to and that's that's what a lot of people see these negotiations are anyway they're just trying to punish us because they're fearful of this sort of domino effect you know that once once we leave and we look prosperous and you know successful other Euros- rising eurosceptic stars like you know italy or um I guess like I guess sort of Hungary and Poland you know these other countries may actually start to follow suit and actually may want to want to exit from the European Union itself because we have seen over the over the years especially since the 
financial crisis and I mean even the, the migrant crisis and things like this you know there has been a rise of Euroscepticism of course not just in this country but throughout Europe as well you know of course a lot of these Eurosceptic parties haven't been as successful as they want to do if you look at France and the Netherlands but then they have been very successful if you look at countries like Italy so I think there is and I think the European Union is frightened it's terrified of populism it doesn't know how to handle it it doesn't know how to respond to it so of course all that's going to happen is that populism is just going to continue to increase while these European elites are still going to sort of churn out the same sort of liberal rhetoric that people just don't buy into anymore You used it. You used a quite a, uh, interesting choice of words there. Where you said that you wanted to remain with the same rules um, for trading with the EU. <laughs> um, so what's the point in leaving if we're well, going to keep the same no, standards? No, I mean, so there's this, so this idea. No, so this is idea. There's a difference between sort of regulatory harmonisation and regulatory alignment, which of course has been uh, mentioned by David Davis uh, in the past when he was still Brexit Secretary. So with regulatory harmonisation is then we we literally absorb all of the rules. But the problem is because we're still absorbing all of the, all of the rules from the EU. So of course then the jurisdiction of European courts and of course actually the EU could still have say over new rules that then would have to apply apply to our economy and our economic sectors. Whereas of course the difference is you have regulatory alignment. So what we're doing anyway with the withdrawal bill is we're taking all of the EU rules and laws and then we're we're transferring them over to UK statute law. So, of course, you know, we're, we're going through all these legislation. We're removing, you know, the names of European institutions and things like that and frameworks and agencies and all the rest of it. And then, of course, then if we wanted to, as a parliament, yes, it will take, of course, probably maybe years of procedures, but we can then start a process of deregulating if we wanted to, because that's what a lot of Brexiteers, um, you know, were frustrated with the European Union. They thought a lot of it was uh, over-regulating these industries, our industries, and making them less competitive not just you know economically regionally with the European Union but also globally as well do you have any specific examples of the overregulation um, so I guess you know I guess there's the classics this sort of, you know kind of you look at the work working time directive and things like that and I know one issue so I think they're actually uh, so I think there's issues with also the landfill directive as well because I think there was a, an article a few weeks ago saying that actually now bin collections may now be every three weeks rather than what usually at the moment it's like every two one or two weeks and things like that so now does that not seem pretty pretty reasonable you're trying to trying to cut down waste you're trying to get people to be more oh, trying to trying to cut waste. down waste but I mean the I mean, but the problem is it's so of course I understand why they're doing it because of course it's it's sort of the you know they kind of have like these sort of green policies they're trying to implement you know within these directives mm-hmm. but then the problem is as well is uh, it's not that it's not just that simple just to extend it an extra week and expect ordinary people so you know it, it's a transition that would have to be taken over time and I think what most people well, it's frustra- not like we're jumping from one to three weeks no but I mean it's I think what I think what uh, people are finding frustrating is that of course it's not the local authorities or these councils you know even councillors or even uh, MPs that they've elected it's coming from rules from you know a European commission that sort of sets the agenda and it sort of then trickles down to yes a democratic parliament and then of course a council of ministers but then throughout the whole legislative process there's only one democratic body that has decision making the rest of them have never you know never been voted in you know cannot be voted out They're, they are essentially by definition unaccountable to not just the british electorate but european electorates uh, across the eu well that is a, a great great place to leave it 
Yeah. What's the what's the petition that's going to Dynasty? Oh yeah, so if you want to talk about that, oh of course yeah no so we did it yesterday actually so we've we've written a letter to Theresa May because uh, we did send one uh, last month and we didn't really get a response so this time we decided that she go down to Ten Downing Street um, and deliver it in person so basically it's just telling her that you know a lot of the supporters a lot of uh, emails and messages we've been getting from our supporters who are frustrated with the Chequers deal and you know they don't they don't see it as a, a Brexit or Brexit they voted for it's very watered down. Down. Um, you know, so of course we've written to her, you know, uh, kind of urging her to take a more stronger stance with the EU um, and actually, you know, uh, massively sort of reform this uh, Chequers proposal or actually, you know, change large aspects of it or actually prepare for a no deal. Because I know, um, you know, we've even mentioned that, of course, there was a Conservative home poll uh, just last week that was saying, I think it was now up to, uh, it was so. The, out of the Conservative members that were polled, I think 45% of them, so the majority, now want Theresa May to go. So it's not just uh, grassroots up and down the country. So, of course, we get messages from, you know, you know, Labour voters, because <coughs> we, we are a cross-party uh, campaign. So we do get um, we do get messages and emails from people from both sides. But it does also show it's not just, you know, the British grassroots or a lot of British public that are upset. It's also actually the Conservatives themselves don't even are upset with their leader and the, you know the way she's proceeded with this and of course we just talked about the fact you know that she's uh you know she's been sidelining brexiteers um you know the fact that she's a remainer clear, you clearly don't have the heart in it so if you don't have the heart in it how about step aside or step down and uh maybe like maybe like someone like boris johnson should take charge <laughs> right well that's that's a, that's yeah. a note to with uh, yeah thanks very much for, for chanting yeah thank you it's been nice talking to you Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or on Spotify. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And generally, just spread the word. Until next time, thanks for listening.